0: amen well good morning church good morning good morning morning. i want to start off a little bit different this morning i want to read psalm 29 two verses to you psalm 29 honor the lord you heavenly beings honor the lord for his glory and strength honor the lord for the glory of his name worship the lord in the splendor of his holiness Honor means to give recognition, to give adoration and celebration, to acknowledge how incredible God is. There are times that we do that with a round of applause. There are other times that we do that with gifts or other types of celebrations. And then there are those moments where you're speechless. There are those times where, in your honor and your adoration and in your celebration, You're brought to tears and you don't have the right words or words seem inadequate at best to articulate what you're feeling. And that has been me all morning. I couldn't bring myself to sing along with our band, not because I wasn't in a place of worship or or celebration, it's quite the opposite. I've been so overwhelmed and overcome with how great our God is, how amazing our Father is, how tremendous we are are blessed, how tremendously blessed we are to get to be a part of what God is doing in our midst. And I don't want us to lose sight of what he's doing. I would be remiss as a pastor, but even more as a father, if I didn't take this moment and this space, take the liberties that have been afforded to me as the senior pastor of Reach Church to say that I want us to acknowledge that the individuals that were up here on this stage gave up six days of their lives last week to be with 101 students, 14 of which encountered Jesus and their lives will never be the same again. Come on. I want us just to take a moment and acknowledge, to to celebrate, to honor God for the amazing men and women Teenagers and children that are going to serve this afternoon. We have 350 backpacks that we have filled with every supply for every grade that students are going to need this year. We have seven inflatables that we are going to fill up. We have all kinds of other activities and games. We have the Go Grill that God is using to bless over 2,500 people over the last several months. And we are going to be out in full force today at the park blessing this community because we. We hope for an opportunity to help people encounter Jesus where their lives will be changed forever. So Outreach team, thank you. Amazing. Reach kids midweek. I don't hear... My children go a week without talking about, is it time for RKM yet? Is it time? I said, guys, when school starts, it's going to be time for RKM. They are actually willing to go back to school if it means that they get to go to reach kids (laughs) midweek. That is like the consolation for them at school, but reach kids midweek. Cheston and Jen and Bethany and countless volunteers will meet with hundreds of kids over the next several months sharing the love of Jesus with them, helping them encounter Jesus through the active, living, breathing word of God, not just to memorize scripture, but to encounter Jesus and to learn to live it out. How amazing is our children's ministry. Thank you for all of you who make that possible. Praise God. And finally, and not the least of which, I could continue to celebrate, but I want to take this opportunity to personally celebrate that over the last several weeks, our staff, our elders, and several key volunteers have stepped in and they've stepped up, allowing me bandwidth to create margin in my life, to step back from the day-to-day ministry and the responsibilities that go with preaching and have filled this pulpit and have done so with integrity and with intentionality. Even last week, with less than 12 hours' notice, something came up in my life that I was unable to preach. And I started scrambling to find somebody, and Jennifer Brown said, I, I, I'll do it. And I said, Great. She said, I'm gonna plagiarize your notes, so give them to me the way she stepped in and stepped up I am just so grateful to have a teaching team that we are surrounded with and I want to explain to you why we have the kind of teaching team that we do here at Reach Church so long as I am blessed to get to pastor you in this community this church will never be Andrew centric it will never be about my preaching or my persona or my personality I am but conduit a servant of the living God and I am so uh, honored that many of you have reached out over the last five weeks and have asked when I'm coming back to preach and where I'm at and letting me know that you miss me. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It makes me feel good. But more than that, I am so honored that we have an amazing, talented team of men and women that can flat out preach the gospel and do it with such Integrity and intentionality. God uses each one of them. And so to our teaching team who've stepped up, our staff who've stepped up, our volunteers who've stepped up over the last several weeks, while well, I've been able to, to recover and get ready for another amazing year of ministry, I want to personally say thank you on behalf of my wife and our kids for giving me that freedom to be able to, to take some time away from preaching. Thank you. Can you guys help me thank them? It's a lot of work. A lot of work. When I was in seminary, statistically, they said that one, one 30 hour, or excuse me, one, well, only when I preach is 30 hours. One 30 minute sermon is the equivalent of a 30 hour work week, emotionally and psychologically and even physically. And did you know that on average, for every one minute preached, the average person who develops a sermon spends an hour preparing for that one minute? So for a 40 minute sermon, it's about 40 hours of preparation time. That should not be lost on us, the amount of intentionality that we put into rightly dividing God's word, trying to handle it with care and doing our best to present it in a way that matters and makes sense. Okay, is it okay that I took that time? Good, because I got the microphone still. I just wanted to say, (laughs) I've missed you guys. I've missed you guys. My family and I got to go away for a couple of weeks to Denver, Colorado, and then we got to go back to Oregon. We haven't been home in six years We got to go back to Oregon where my daughter Ryan asked for and purchased her own Oregon Duck sweatshirt and she's worn it every day. Praise God, I love that kid. And then we came back and had had an emergency come up last week, and so I've been back for two weeks working in the office with our staff, but not preaching, and I'm just so grateful. So uh, I do want to let you know that the last time I took extended time off from preaching, I preached 27 minutes longer than normal. So I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to start preaching. Grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles here in the worship center, online, wherever you're watching from, grab your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 19. Let me ask you to do this. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I would encourage you to raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to bring you a Bible. These Bibles are a gift. They're from Reach church to you. They're yours to have and to keep. We encourage you to bring it with you each and every week that you come and bring something to write on and to write with. We're picking up. In a historical narrative throughout the first book of Samuel, the life and the leadership and the ministry of Samuel, and we're introduced to several other key individuals in this narrative. And today, we're going to pick up and learn more about the life of David, Saul, Jonathan, who we were just introduced to, and we're going to see Samuel again as well. While you're turning to 1 Samuel 19, let me tell you that there are some things, there are some words that if I ever hear again, it'll be too soon. Let me just share some of you, uh, with, with some of them with you. Like. Can I get an amen? Like, can I just like get it like amen? Like. My children. And and, and God help them. I have a background in communications, so that probably doesn't help the cause. But there are times I have one child in particular. I would never mention Taylin's name because I would not want to embarrass her. But my 15-year-old sophomore daughter will get going, and I will just listen to her talk. And without even using words, I'll just start going like this. And I I get that. She said, I just said like four times in 30 seconds, didn't I? Like, yes, you did. (laughs) I say, slow down. Think about what you want to say, um, um, uh, so, you know, those are things that we see all the time in conversations that people use when they're scrambling for thought or trying to put a sentence together, they use it as a conjunction to bring the sentence of thought together to complete it. They drive me nuts. My wife, when we're listening to guest preachers, will watch me unintentionally tally the number of times. And I have my own things too. Think about it. I, I do silly things. I'm going to draw your attention to it now, and then you'll pay attention to that instead of the sermon. In fact, I won't because then you're going to be like, yeah, he really does touch his glasses a lot when he's preaching or just silly things like that. But it's hard not to notice those things. Let me tell you three words that I can't stand hearing probably more than any others. It's not Fair. It's not fair. I grew up in a house as the oldest of six children, and I had privileges afforded to me at an early age that my younger siblings didn't. And you know what I heard all the time? It's not fair. My siblings got away with things that I never would have thought to get away with. And do you know what I found myself saying? It's not fair. I now have six children of my own, and having spent three weeks. And traveled thousands of miles all over the country this summer, driving to Denver and driving to Oregon and everywhere in between. The number of times they would bicker and argue and fight about the dumbest things, we would end up making a concession, or we would tell one child over another, This is the way it's gonna be. And they would declare with such conviction, But it's not fair. As adults, Wouldn't we be lying if we said that we've never had that thought or wrestled with that internally? That we look at our lives and we look at the circumstances surrounding our lives. And and here's the the reason I think that as adults, as children, it's just misappropriation or it's just complete ignorance on our parents' part. But as adults... We look at the circumstances surrounding our lives. We consider the things that we've done to get where we've gotten. The amount of work we've put in, the effort, the hours, the sacrifices made. We look at the things that we do to position ourselves the best we can in life. And when it doesn't turn out the way we think it should, don't we wrestle internally? Even intrinsically tied to everything with the same sentiment that we wrestle with as children, it's not fair. We see this when you're dealing with a health crisis. I mean, it makes no sense to me. People who eat broccoli and carrots as snacks, and every meal consists of quinoa and chia seeds, and they end up with a bad heart. Or dying at an early age. The nicest people the world will ever know, and they die at a young age. And you look at these circumstances, you say, but that's not fair. It's just, it's not fair. And so, my question is how do we deal with the it's not fair moments in our lives? As followers of Jesus, how do we make sense of and manage that space between our minds and our lives? when life just isn't fair. That's what we're gonna see today and that's what we're gonna discuss today. Heavenly Father, as we jump now into a time of your word, I pray that you would continue to fill this place with your presence. Pour over me a fresh anointing. I pray, Lord, that I would decrease, that you might increase. Lord, I wanna be used as nothing more than conduit for our good and for your glory. I pray that as your word goes out today, that it will change the hearts that it touches. And may it begin with me. Lord, I ask that you give me the strength, the clarity of mind, and the consistency of speech to preach with intentionality, to rightly divide your word with integrity and authenticity and in ways that matter and make sense. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you alone. For you are the only one worthy. And it's in the mighty and the powerful and the ever-present name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 18, 1 Samuel 18, that is. Jennifer helped us wrap up last week this relationship between David and Jonathan. If you didn't get to watch it last week, I encourage you to go back and check it out. And there are several incredible points throughout the message that were highlighted, one of which was how Jonathan took off his robe and his tunic and his sword and his belt and his bow, and he gave it to David, symbolically saying, "You're the rightful heir to the throne. You're the rightful king. God has chosen you." And so I am, I am succeed I, 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 excuse me, I, I am conceding to your leadership in my life. They have this kindred spirit, this bond, this relationship. It's very familial. It's a phileo, kind of a brotherly love. And we see this relationship begin to unfold as David's life is now in peril. This young boy, maybe 18 to 20, 22 at the oldest at this age, at this time, this stage in the story, is faithfully serving King Saul. And he's dealing with things that aren't fair. His life is being put on the line in ways that just don 't make sense it doesn 't add up he 's done nothing to wrong Saul, and yet Saul, in his own jealousy in his own haste, his own emotion, plagued by evil spirits, wants nothing more but to kill David, and he plots to do such and In the end, we see that david 's life is spared, and the people of Israel, along with michael the king 's daughter and Jonathan and, and and the men that follow David in battle, they love David. And he's growing in fame and he's growing in popularity. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 19. In spite of all that's transpired, it says, Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll ask my father to go out there with me and I'll talk to him about you. And then I'll tell you everything I can find out. And so there's two things in this initial text that stand out to me. Number one is Saul's approach to scheming. Do you ever do that? Do you ever want to do something in your life that you know is really contrary to how you should live? Do you ever make concessions or compromise in your life? One of the ways that I find that I do that most easy is by involving others. If I know it's a bad idea or I'm on the fence about it, I'll actually go out and I'll begin to rally troops around me to tell me what I want to hear. I'll I'll recruit the help of yes men to agree with me. That's what Saul thinks he's doing here. He gets his military men and he gets his son. And of course his son, heir to the throne, is going to stand in solidarity with his father. And so Saul comes with these men in mind, scheming. He wants them to agree that what he wants to do by killing David is actually a good thing. But what happens is exactly the opposite, and that's the way it should be in the life of every follower of Jesus. We should find people to speak the last 10 percent in love into our lives. not look for people who are going to tell us what we want to hear, but find those people who have the courage and the strength and the spiritual maturity to tell us what we need to hear. And this is exactly what happens is Jonathan is going to go to David because of a vow that he makes. And out of a strong relationship, a kindred spirit, this familial bond that he has, he's going to warn David. Now we're going to see something. We're going to see throughout this story, two things. Number one, that what's happening to David just isn't fair. There's no part of what's going on with David that is fair. Relationally, physically, socially, even spiritually, it just doesn't seem like it's fair at all. But we're going to see God protect David in five different ways. And I want to prepare us for the rest of the text. Here's what I want to show you. In this story, we're going to see that while God never pulls David out of the troubles, God is with David in every moment of the troubles. This is one of five areas that we see that God protects David in the troubles. He doesn't remove him, but he protects him. He's got something for David in the troubles. He's got something for David in the trials and something good is going to come from David having gone through the troubles and trials. And so the first the first line of protection is God is going to use Jonathan and that relationship to go and to prepare him, to tell him, you need to get out into the wilderness and find a hiding spot. My dad's gone cuckoo again. He's lost it. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to try to rash, a rash, you know, like rationalize with him. But assuming it doesn't go well, you're better off outside of the four walls of the kingdom. Verse four, the next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant, David, Jonathan said, he's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill a Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. Jonathan plays to the political presence that Saul so desperately longs to hold. Knowing that the nation of Israel admires and loves and cares deeply for David, one of the phrases that Jonathan uses in his conversation to the king, his father, Saul, is why should the king sin against David? For him to kill an innocent man would have been wrong in the eyes of the people. For the king to use his power and his authority to assassinate one of the mighty men in his own military, the one who has brought the greatest victories Israel has ever known, slaying the mighty giant Goliath from Gath, would be trouble For Saul. So Jonathan is using his father's techniques. He's scheming. But what he's doing is he's he's comparing facts with the emotions that Saul is dealing with, and he's saying, Why would the king do something so egregious as to sin against a man like David who has served you so faithfully and so well? You shouldn't do it. The people are gonna lose their minds. Besides, this is a man who who's done so much good for you. In verse 6, we have a glimmer of hope. There seems to be some light at the end of this tunnel. It says, so Saul listened to Jonathan and he vowed as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. This vow is a commitment. It's a promise. It's a declaration. And so we have a sense of hope here. Good. Saul's finally come to his senses. Now look at verse 7. afterward, Jonathan called David and told him what had happened. And then he brought David to Saul and David served in the court as before. Jennifer said it last week and I think it's, it's worth repeating. The only way, the only way that we could serve someone that is our enemy is by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. David comes back into the inner courts of Saul and serves this man And what does Jesus say about serving our enemies? Doesn't he say, love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to all, even your enemies. And the world will know that you are a follower of Jesus by your love. David had every right to despise Saul. To create a coup, an uprising, to leverage his popularity to bring out his own mighty men and add to his own military strength and might and overthrow the throne. And yet here it says that he submits himself to the authority and the leadership of Saul, his own enemy. And the only way that you can submit yourself to subject yourself to someone like this is by the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life verse eight, war broke out again after that. And David led his troops against the Philistines and he attacked them with such fury that they ran away. But one day when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, can we just stop to acknowledge that that's not a normal thing? <laughs> like if if you ever invite me and my family to your home for dinner and I walk in and you are holding a revolver in your hand just sitting there watching Sunday night football. That's not normal. I don't care how country you are. I don't care how Midwest you are. That's not normal. You don't don't sit there in the confines of your own living room holding a gun in your hand, just holding a gun in your hand. David is sitting in the King's court and he's playing as a skilled musician Music to calm the king down because he's filled with torment. And by the way, Pastor Russell touched on this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating as well. This tormenting spirit that comes from the Lord, it, was not a, it wasn't a, a spirit that God gave to Saul. He wasn't tormenting him and torturing him. He wasn't cursing him. What, what this literally signifies is that God had turned Saul over to himself. And we see this happen multiple times throughout scripture, don't we? The Bible says that God gave them over to their own vices. God gave the people over to their own lusts, to their own desire, to their own wickedness. This tormenting spirit that we see inside of Saul is a manifestation of his own motives, his own, his own heart, his own hatred, his own insecurities. It's everything that is a culmination of anything within him that comes and it attacks him as a tormenting spirit. And as such, he's sitting there, he's so overcome. Jennifer, Jennifer talked about this last week. What happens when you deal with these kinds of, of feelings that you deal with insecurity, you deal with with jealousy, you deal with rage, you deal with instability, and this is exactly what's going on is this man is sitting there in the confines of his own home, insecure, anxious, and he's, 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 he's bewildered in his own mind about what's going on. He's just holding the spear in his hand. Now, remember, he's not just a, an avid hunter. He's a skilled warrior. He's telling, he, this, is, this is no different than us holding a semi-automatic handgun in our hand in our living room. It says, one day Saul is sitting at home with a spear in his hand, the torment, tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. And as David played, his, can I just stop and say that this, this verse right here? It, it, forgive me, this is new to me. I'm dealing with this. This reminds me of something. One day Saul was sitting at home when the spirit in his hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. He sounds like a teenage girl. Now, <laughs> like, I'm dealing with this right now in my house. We've got two of them. And a teenage boy. And they will literally, I, I will ask them, why are you Why are you feeling this way? I don't know. Why are you acting this way? I don't know. Uh, even our youngest, Brianne, our six-year-old daughter, just recently told us at a family conversation around the dinner table, there are sometimes I just want to hurt people, but I don't. <laughs> well, praise God you don't hurt people. <laughs> Honey, pack her bags. We got to we got to send her off to get evaluated. A well, Poor little, I mean, she's the youngest of six, and they just pick at her. They take her stuff, and they badger her, and they they just pick at her. And so sometimes she just, and she's so good about, is she's so good about holding it in, isn't she, Stacy? Until those moments, she's like, sometimes I just want to hurt you. Sometimes I just want to hurt you. Like, I just envisioned that Saul's just sitting there, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's just filled with this, uh, this torment. Like, I don't know what's going on. Welcome to my house, Saul. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spirit David. This is now multiple times he's done this. But I want you to pay attention because God is going to use another opportunity to protect David. He didn't take David from the troubles, but he protects him in the troubles. And look how he does it. As David's playing his harp, Saul hurled his spirit David, but David dodged out of the way and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. How many of you know that God will allow us to use our experiences and, and, and our, own, our own bodies to protect ourselves from the enemy. I mean, we, we, we've got, assuming that you're in good health and God has blessed you with two feet, one of the greatest defenses we have for the tactics in the scheme of the devil, watch this. Walk away. Not today, devil. You can't have my joy today, devil. Uh-uh. You know that you're at home alone, guys, and you, you've got that temptation to get on the computer. Walk away. God's given you these resources. You know that you've got that, that, that spirit of gossip come over you and you want to talk bad about that person. Walk into the next room and grab your Bible and read about how a gossip betrays a, a trust and how it's murder with the mouth. You see, God has given us physical abilities that we can use in times of trouble, in times of anxiousness and, and discouragement. We can use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given us to pursue him all the more. And I love that this is the first way he uses Jonathan as a, as a confidant. The second is that he uses his own body to get up and get out of there. And then it says here, after he escaped, verse 11, then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. And now there are spies that are looking at his daughter and son-in-law's house. And they were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michael, David's wife, she loved him very much, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window and he fled and escaped. Now, there's two things here that I wanna touch on. Number one is the fact that Michael was serving as a scout for David. She had to have been aware. She had to have been paying attention and saw in the distance that there were men who were coming to harm her husband. And so when when she saw the sign of trouble, she went to her husband to warn him, to say, look out, trouble's coming. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need spiritual scouts in our lives. When we're doing things we shouldn't be doing or we're saying things that we shouldn't be saying or we're putting ourselves in positions that we should not be putting ourselves in with other people or with other opportunities, we need spiritual scouts in our lives that are willing to say to us, come on, get out of here. You've got to run from that before you die. Before you get caught up in it, you need to get away from it. We need spiritual scouts that are looking out for our best interests, that want to make sure that we're not putting ourselves in positions to sin against God, to sin against ourselves, or to sin against anyone else. And so let me ask you this morning, who is your spiritual scout? Who's looking out for you? Who's looking ahead and around you and behind you to make sure that you're living a life that is honoring God as a follower of Jesus, that you're using the language of a follower of Jesus, that you're spending your time and your resources and your energy in a way that is honoring Jesus. I remember I had a spiritual scout. I didn't recruit her, but she decided that that was her role in high school. Her name was Nikki Bale. We went to the same youth group. I played football. She was a cheerleader. I was a youth group leader on Wednesday night. I started preaching as a high school student. I was given a lot of great responsibilities by Pastor Steve Zink. And so I would preach on Wednesday. Well, the next day after youth group, I was in the halls. We had a game on a Thursday night, and I was wearing my football jersey along with all my, my buddies, and we were all telling dirty jokes. And Nikki grabbed my arm and she pulled me aside. And she just so subtly and in love reminded me that as a follower of Jesus and one whom God had blessed to be in ministry, my life needed to be consistent with my calling and to watch my mouth. And she gave me a hug and she walked away. She didn't condemn me. She didn't cast stones in me. She just held me accountable. She was a, she was a spiritual scout in my life saying, hey, hey, pay attention. You might not even be aware that you're doing this. You're starting to compromise your convictions because of your companions. You need a spiritual scout in your life. And the second thing that I love about this text is that while death is at the door, David escapes through the window. How many of us would go to the door thinking that we, we're strong enough to take on the battle? How many of us are crazy enough to think that we'll just go to the door and we can handle that, the death that's knocking on our door? I can do this, I've got this or or we start looking for places to hide in the house it's like playing hide and go seek with my with my kids it's amazing they will hide behind things like this and say dad won't be able to see me where's your window where's your window when death is knocking on the door where's your window now, let's, let's qualify what death is. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And sometimes that gift looks like a window. You see, death that knocks on our door is that sin that Satan wants to use to pull us back in to his reach, to his grasp. The Bible describes it by trying to get a foothold. And so what are some of those deaths? For some of you, that death is alcohol. And you begin to to just start to rationalize and justify in your own mind, well, it's just a sip or it's just a drink. But for some of you to drink alcohol while it's prohibited, excuse me, while it's not prohibited in the Bible, it says that we should not get drunk on wine But the Bible also says that some things, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So there are some things that are actually leading to death for you. There are some relationships that are knocking on the front door that are absolute death. They are pulling you down. And let me explain, let me describe and define every relationship you'll ever have. This is true of every relationship, whether it's an acquaintance or it's the closest family member you have. There is no gray area relationally when it comes to people and your relationship with God the Father. They are either helping you pursue the Father or they are pulling you down. And so when you're around these people, are they building you up and encouraging you to live the life all the more of a follower of Jesus? What does death look like at your door? And so my question then again is, where's your window? When death comes knocking on the door, where's your window? And some, of us, some of us have this strong fighter's mentality. I'm not gonna run away from a fight. Some of the best things that we can do as men and women in the fight is to get out through the window get out through the window. Now, I, I deal with this. I got a prank phone call last week from uh, our former children's director's husband. It was, uh, he didn't know that I knew it was him, but he didn't dial star 67 first. And so his name, Noah Borgman, came up on my phone. And it was an automated voice that said, yo, man, why'd you hit my car? And I, I just started laughing. It was like, i I'm not playing. I know it was you, you left a note that said, you hit my car, I wanna deal with this now. And it just, it's this audit. And I said, all right, how big a boy are you? We're like, we're playing this whole thing. And I said, well, you can find me at 407. I put my address, like I'm literally yelling at the phone and at the end it said, you've been pranked by a dial, the blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> I was ready for the fight. And sometimes as a follower of Jesus, the best thing you can do in the fight is to look for the window, look for the window. And so she helped him, verse 12, she helped him climb out through a window and he fled and escaped. And then she took an idol and put it in his bed and and covered it with blankets and put a cushion of goat's hair at its head. If anybody ever mistakes human hair for goat's hair, there's a problem. This is a passage of scripture that I struggle with. Do you wanna know why I struggle with this? Does it bother anybody else that it says that Michael, David's wife took an idol, a pagan idol and put it in the bed. Do you know what that means? That she would have had access to an idol, maybe even in her own home. How many of us, how many of us allow idols in our homes? We may not worship them, but we allow space for them in our lives. And I can't answer why. Even culturally and contextually, I can understand historically and what's going on in this space and time, but I I struggle with this in my own heart because it reminds me of the idols that I allow myself to to leave myself open to. Verse 14, when the troops came to arrest David, she told them that he was sick and couldn't get out of bed. But Saul sent the troops back to David and he ordered, bring him to me in his bed so I'll kill him. He's done waiting for the Philistines. He's done plotting and scheming. He literally says, bring the bed, headboard, headboard, And all, and I'll kill him myself. Verse 16. But when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed with a cushion of goat's hair at its head. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape? Saul demanded of his daughter Michael. I had to, Michael replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. So, using the same scheming that her father uses, that's the conduit that she uses to protect. David. And this is the third example of where we see God not pulling David out of trouble, but protecting him in the trouble. The first is with Jonathan. The second is with his own physical abilities. And now the third is with his wife, Michael. So David escaped in verse 18 and went to Ramah to see Samuel, priest, prophet, and judge. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. And then Samuel took David with him to live at Naoth. When the report reached Saul that David was with Naoth and Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. But they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also began to prophesy. And when Saul heard what happened, he sent other troops, but they too prophesied. And the same thing happened a third time. And finally Saul went to Ramah and arrived at the great well in Siku. Where are Samuel and David, he demanded. They're at Naoth and Ramah, someone told him. Well, so there's several things that are unfolding in this, and not the least of which is the fourth way that God protects. He uses Samuel. First, he uses Jonathan, and then he uses David's own abilities. Then he uses Michael, but now Samuel. You see, in the middle of trouble, David goes to the trusted man of God, to a trusted voice that is leaning in to the presence of God, that knows and can distinguish the voice of God, and can help him walk in a way that is consistent with the person of God. This is really clear for me anyway, that we need to be intentional about the voices that we allow to speak into our lives. You see, we can go to social media to tell everybody about our problems and our concerns and ask for opinions. And that's all they are is opinions. We can go to our friends that we trust and we're gonna get their life experiences. They may not be experts. They may have never traveled where you've been. They may have no understanding of what you're going through but they're your friends and they're gonna give you their best experiences. And then we can turn to pop culture Christianity. We can turn on the radio and we can listen to any flavor of preaching that you wanna listen to. How to live your best life now. That God is for you and not against you. That God has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And that if you just have more faith or you just give more or you just do more, or you sin less that you're going to be saved from this trouble that you're facing. The problem with everything I just said is none of it is consistent with the word of God. That a la carte Christianity is garbage. That's for the goats. If you don't know what I mean, have you ever seen goat's food? Have you ever smelled goat's food? You have been around? It's nasty. That kind of theological goat food Belongs in the pen. What David does is he goes to a trusted man of God who has authority in the word of God and who has consistently time and again demonstrated a right relationship with God and he asks for help. And Samuel brought him in to live with him. So now God hasn't removed David's troubles, but he's protected him by Jonathan and he's protected him by his own abilities and he's protected him by Michael's wife, and now he's protected him by Samuel the prophet. But look at this. Do you not find this interesting starting in verse 19? When the report reached Saul that David was at Naoth and Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. But when they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also began to prophesy. When Saul heard what had happened, he sent other troops, but they too prophesied. And the same thing happened a third time. And finally Saul himself went to Ramah and arrived at the great well of CQ. Where are Samuel and David? He demanded there at Naoth and Ramah, someone told him. Well, so let's talk about what prophesying is. The word prophesy in the original language of Hebrew, which this is written in literally means to profess, to tell truth. What we should not glean from this text is that these men of Saul's army gave their lives to God. Instead, what we see clearly in this text is that when they encountered the Holy Spirit, they had but one thing they could do, prophesy or profess the truth. Profess the truth of the person of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the things of God. They began to literally praise God. They hadn't surrendered their lives to God, but when they were living in a space where the Holy Spirit captured them, all they could do was prophesy or profess to be truth tellers. Very rarely, very rarely when you read this, is it a foretelling of what's to come. More often than not, when we read prophesy, it literally means to profess the truth. Can you imagine, Saul, time, time, and time and time again sending his men to Naoth and Ramah. And he hears that these guys aren't coming back, but instead they're prophesying. He goes for himself and he says, I've got to see this for myself. Where's David? Where's Samuel? What have you done with my men? And it's reported to him that they're in Naoth and Ramah, verse 23. But on the way to Naoth and Rama, circle that, on the way, on the way to Naoth and Ramah, The Spirit of God came even upon Saul, the most wretched man. And he too began to prophesy all the way to Naoth. He tore off his clothes and he lay naked on the ground all day and all night prophesying in the presence of Samuel. The people who were watching exclaimed, what is even Saul, a prophet? The the two things that I want to touch on here quickly is the fifth way that God intercedes on behalf of David. He doesn't remove David's troubles, but he provides help in the form of Jonathan and his own natural abilities and Michael and Samuel. And now through the Holy Spirit, God supernaturally intervenes by allowing the Holy Spirit to sweep over these men. And they begin to tell the truth about the person, the nature, and the power, and the presence of God. And what I love is that even before Saul can reach Naoth, even before Saul encounters Samuel and David, God is already at work in his life. It says on the way, not after he got there, but while he was en route, God began to work in his life. Some of you haven't arrived at the place that God wants you to be yet and you're discouraged and and you're frustrated and you're you're looking at this saying, man, I, I feel like I should be further along. But here's the hope that we have in reading this text. God is at work on the way. You may not be where you want to be relationally, but God is at work on the way. You may not be where you need to be financially and honoring God with your tithe and giving out an abundance of joy in your heart, but God is working on the way. You may not be where you need to be in your spiritual walk, with your prayer life, and your devotion life, and and your commitment to Christ, and showing up at church, and going to events like Pack the Park, but God is working while you're on the way. You may not be where you need to be in your marriage, but the hope is that God is working on the way. You may not be where you need to be as an employer or as an employee, but the hope is that God is working on the way. Friends, wake up this morning and hear this, wherever you are at in your journey, you have not Arrived, but God is working on the way. Does that not give you reason to pause and to celebrate? God is working on the way. God is working on the way. God is working on the way. I want to finish with a with a story and a text. I want you to turn into the new testament book of john the gospel of john matthew mark luke john john 16 as you're turning to john 16 i want to tell you this story as quickly as i can as quickly as i can because it has everything to do with on the way god working on the way two weeks ago i flew home from denver my wife dropped me off at the airport and i flew home so that i could be with you guys to preach three sundays ago i guess and then my wife and my son and my kids drove the, the way to Oregon. Three flights, two airlines, and two days later, I ended up in Oregon. I was there for three days. Day two, Stacy had a mandatory work meeting. She had to be at a video conference. And so I had all day. Caden was back in Nebraska. He had a soccer camp he was doing with Creighton University and My little girls, MJ and Brienne, eight and six, had stayed the night at my sister Sarah's house with their cousins, Reagan and Cece, who were just about the same age. And so I had my 15-year-old daughter, Taylin, and my 12-year-old daughter, Ryan. And and Taylin, out of nowhere, I said, girls, what do you want to do today? And Taylin said, dad, can you show us where you grew up? I said, yeah, I can do that. And so I took them to the Oregon City High School where I graduated in 1997 and showed them where I played football and where I used to run with my friends and things like that. And then we started making our way into Portland. Most of you know, but some of you don't know this, that I grew up in inner city Portland. In 1993, Portland, Oregon was number three in the nation for gang activities. I grew up in section eight housing, lived on food stamps and government assistance. My mother was a prostitute. I had no father figure in my life. I grew up in absolute poverty so we're driving through these places. Two of the schools I went to are shut down. They lost funding and closed the doors. And so we're driving around and we end up, the last stop on our way is this house that I lived in. And there's siding hanging from the side of the house and it's, the yard's overgrown and it's just this tiny little house. And we sit there and my daughters start crying. And they say, dad, we hear you tell the stories, but we just never knew. And God in this moment did something miraculous. I turned around to drive out of this part of Portland and on the street corner where I spent much of five years of my life with my very best friend in the world, Danny. There was a guy working, I don't wanna tell you this part of the story. He was bent over the hood of a Ford truck working. It was an old 70s Ford F-100. And I rolled down my window and I said, excuse me, sir. And he turned around, and he said, Yeah. And I said, do you want if I ask you a question? He said, yeah, what is it? And I said, was was there a boy here named Danny? And he said, yeah, Dan. And he used his last name. That's my stepson. Do I know you? I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't talk. And I just turned around and I pointed at the house. And I said, I grew up right. And before I could finish my sentence, he kneeled down by the door and he said, Andy Crowley, Get out here! I had not been there in twenty-seven years. I pulled in the driveway, and I got out with my girls. And he just kept saying, "Oh my, oh my goodness!" Well, he didn't say "goodness." He just kept saying, "Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my," over and over. He said, "Julie's not going to believe this." And he's just—he runs in the house and he grabs his wife and, "What is it? Who is it?" And she said, "He said, Julie, mom, look close." And she got about four, four feet away from me. And she started crying, and she said, "Andy," and she threw her arms around me, and she she said, "We just talked about you four days ago. I was just talking with Dan and with Dave. Everybody you grew up with is dead or in jail, and we haven't seen or heard from you in 27 years, and we just assumed you were in prison or dead as well." And they began to tell stories about how I grew up in front of my girls. I'm like, shh. <laughs> I said, how's Dan? Oh, he's good, he's good. He's got his life together now. He'd been in and out of jail. And he worked several miles down the road as a mechanic. And my daughters and I left after almost an hour and a half and drove down there and saw him. Came around the corner and He told even worse stories to my daughters. (laughs) And he asked me this question. First of all, uh, he started speaking in foreign tongues when he found out that I was a pastor. (laughs) (laughs) And then he asked me this question. He said, what is it? What, what, What was it? What was it that... What was it that got you out of that life? I mean, he literally just told me. A guy that we grew up with, literally a kid that we ran the streets with was gunned down and shot four times five days before I'm talking to him. We just start talking. And I said, the answer was opportunity. Opportunity. God gave me the opportunity through Bob and Sean Anderson to be adopted, which led to me learning about Jesus and encountering him where my life was changed forever. The difference between me and everybody I grew up with was one opportunity. One. One opportunity. One. I want to read to you about opportunity today. In John 16, 33, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples about how he's gonna go and he'll come back for them and they don't understand and Jesus explains it in detail to him. And in verse 30, 31, and we're gonna read 31 and to the end. Do you finally believe that the time is coming and indeed it's here now when you will be scattered, each one of you going his own way, leaving me alone? Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Now listen to this. Here is your opportunity. Here is your one thing. I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't take his disciples out of the trouble. In fact, things only get worse for them. We're gonna study the book of Acts next year, Acts of the Apostles, and you're gonna see what I mean. They follow Jesus and things only get worse. Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you everything I'm telling you So that regardless of the trouble that you're facing, you may be at peace with me. In this world, in this world, you will have troubles of many kinds. But here's the opportunity that Jesus presents all of us. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I know you're facing struggles this morning. I know even if you're at the best place you've ever been in, that there is something that the enemy is trying to use to trip you up. Death is knocking on the door. But the, the, the hope is that God has provided a window and a way out. And so the promise of a hope this morning, no matter what you're facing, isn't that God's going to take you out of the trouble, but that he's going to walk with you through it all. Through it all, David never again served in Saul's court. David lived the next two decades as a fugitive on the run. David's troubles never went away from him. Yet in every single circumstance, God was with him. Would you rather live a godless life away from trouble or a God-filled life in the middle of the fire? I don't know what you're facing this morning, but here's the opportunity. God. And I've told you all this so that you may have peace with Jesus, that no matter what you're facing this morning, Jesus has overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world, we have hope of eternal life. In just a few hours, in fact, I'm gonna have you come up here really quick. Steve, I'm probably gonna get in trouble for this later, but I'm the senior pastor. I think there's some things I can do. Is this Pastor Steve doing? Uh, will he be embarrassed? No. Good, come on. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, 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 so I don't have a microphone, so you're gonna have to stand really close to me, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not awkward. <laughs> let, me, let me talk to you for just a second about Opportunity. I've never seen Steve speechless. None of you have either. Uh-oh. Until this morning, I walked up to Steve. I said, he's like, man, hey, he just stopped me. He goes, hey, you got a minute? One minute before service starts. He's like, man, you're not even gonna believe this. Let me talk to you about the power of one opportunity. You see this shirt right here. This is a, an eye with a, a heart and a buffalo, which represents Wyoming and W-Y. Um, the only other thing in Wyoming besides these shirts is buffalo, I promise. I just drove through it. Uh, Steve, introduce your friend and why he's here.
1: This is my friend Dan Webb. Uh, I've known Dan 12 years. And he was at our first back to school bash in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And helped me at every single one of them until he moved to Oklahoma two years ago. And I was standing out greeting all of you this morning. And he showed up, unbeknownst to me, because he couldn't miss Pack the Park and serving with me and all of you.
0: So he drove eight hours from Oklahoma where he lives now because he believes so much in what God has done in Steve's life and in what this event is going to do in the life of Blair, Nebraska. Neither one of you prepared for this. But listen, we're talking about opportunity right now, right? Everybody's got this one opportunity. What would you say about this opportunity this afternoon to make an impact where people can encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever from your experience? From my experience, you know, being with Steve. <laughs> yeah,
1: <there's, laughs> um, it just gives us an opportunity to show up and show off the many blessings that uh, God puts on the community that believes in
0: him. Amen. So. Amen. Yeah. That,
1: that's do they have to be really good themselves. at
0: anything? Say that do do these people have to be really good at anything? No. They just have to show up.
1: <laughs> they just have to show
0: up. One opportunity to show up, and you showing up in someone's life this week could be the opportunity that they have to encounter Jesus, where their lives are changed forever. So listen. I don't know. Again, I don't know what you're dealing with, but I know this. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's go live like Jesus has overcome the world. Steve, would you pray for us as the worship team comes back out?
1: God, you're good. Thank you for, so much for the opportunity that we have today, this very day, to go forth into the community and show p- people who you are and that you would get the glory for all things today. Thank you for supplying all the resources and everything that we have um, to give away. And Lord, we just want your name famous. Um, Thank you for all the people that are serving, and thank you for everybody that showed up today. God, you're good, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.